Hey, it's Yona Bud. I've been working with young people and adults for more than 40 years, helping them live their best life. Now on this podcast, I do it for you too. That's why we call it At Your Best, so I can help you become your best self each week. So let's explore stories from all across Canada and celebrate how strong we really are, even when we feel at our weakest. You know, remember how easy it was to make friends as a child? Maybe for you, not so much for me. You think you could do it as an adult? Well, about 52 new friends. How would would you like to do that? That's exactly what Miriam Amdur is doing. And at the end of Halfway Point, she tells us how it's been going so far and how she feels. And our child welfare system's in serious trouble in the province of Ontario. But one woman in Sarnia found a way to not only improve the situation, but have zero children in any group home since 2019. Executive Director of the Sarnia Children's Aid, Don Flagel, lets us know how the Chasing Zero program got started and how long it can keep going. So sit back, relax, and get ready to listen to ways we can help make you be at your best. I was reading about uh, an article, just kind of passing through the paper, and I uh, read an article that says, will alcohol go the way of cigarettes? And uh, what one public health battle can tell us. So I guess the comparison here is really around um, whether um, – you know, the scare tactics and the taxing and all that kind of stuff that went on with cigarettes, right? So you've seen by the video by now, right, where there's a St. Catherine's man, he seemed to strike a, a chord recently after he was uh, interviewed uh, about his dr- uh, drinking habits outside a store where he just pur- purchased uh, uh, 12 tall boys of beer. He says, two drinks, a, two drinks a week. Now, this is going back to that two drink a week story that we shared with you, I think, a month, a month and a half ago, uh, where a report came out that two, two drinks a week is, is safe. Anything beyond that can cause issues. Apparently, alcohol can now ca- cause cancer. Anyway, this man goes on to say that um, he... Uh, Two drinks a week, kind of surprising, according to the guidelines released in January by the Canadian Centre on Substance Abuse and Addiction. Um, it's not really feasible in this country, he goes on to say. Why, you know, why you got to tell me how much I can drink at home? Anyway, the, the, the short, the, the, the clip was kind of short, but li- listen to what good friends of mine, I'm just kidding, uh, you'll, you'll recognize their names, Bob and Doug McKenzie. Hear what they say about what the cost of alcohol and, and taxing and what that does for them. Uh, Leo? Good day. I'm Bob McKenzie. This is my brother, Doug. How's it going, eh? Okay, so we did a scientific taste test, and beer does not go down as smoothly with another tax hike. Beer tax is already like my brother's head, overinflated. <laughs> so there you go. That, and, that's, and that's kind of where this article is going. It's going that... You know, we're, we're going to talk about increasing taxes uh, on uh, alcohol to kind of you know let people know. So we're going to the, the way this looks is that um, people talking about sharing information about alcohol in a way that they shared information about cigarettes. Now, you know, there are people that would say you can have a drink, you know, in the evening. And uh, by the way, I'm a addiction counselor and I deal with substance abuse disorders and mental health disorders. So I, I, I won't try not to come at it from that perspective. But um, I think anybody can do anything responsibly, quite frankly. Um, obviously not drugs that can really cause harm, but, um, you know, smoke a joint once in a while, have a drink once in a while, not the end of the world. Well, there's no, you know, they, they say, you know, you can have a, I, I have people that I know only drink when they, only smoke when they drink. So they'll smoke like three or four cigarettes in an evening when they're out on a Saturday night, they have a bunch of drinks and then they don't smoke again for another three weeks until they're out drinking again or two weeks or whatever that is. Right. So to compare alcohol and cigarettes. So there was no, there was never a story for the benefits of smoking, right? There was never a situation where sitting around smoking a cigarette was ever considered to be anything good for you. As a matter of fact, um, that's not necessarily true. There was a discussion years and years and years ago. I can't give you the data. I could probably take the time if you're interested. Uh, You can reach out to me and uh, send me a text message and I'll get the info to you if you care. But there was a time where, you know, they would talk about a couple of cigarettes to kind of calm you down. You know, just smoke, you know, light a cigarette, just calm yourself down, sit on the curb, right? And there was a time when people in crisis, you know, you'd show up to somebody on a crisis call and someone would be all distraught and, you know, you'd offer them a cigarette. Now, you know, a long time ago, I'm talking probably 40, 50 years ago, uh, maybe longer, maybe not so much. But, and if you know, let me know here right now if you can, 877 399 
888-985-9898. We'd love to hear from you by text or by call. Uh, if you can share with me, if there's something you know that relates to uh, when when people used to talk about cigarettes not necessarily being the end of the world. Anyway, the comparison between cigarettes and alcohol, you really can't make it, right? Uh, there's just everything about tobacco and smoking is toxic. Not everything about drinking is toxic per se. So um, now they're talking about changing the, uh, the, the increase in taxes as a deterrent for people to stop drinking or reduce their drinking. So they're trying to get everybody to think that they can drink two drinks a week, and that's more than enough. Otherwise, you know, you could be doing harm. Well, I'm not sure. And, and, and the problem is going to be the separation between taxes and revenue for the giant alcohol companies many of whom, by the way, are now making cannabis-infused beverages. So, you know, maybe there's the, the, they smell the writing on the wall, although the taxes on, on cannabis products are, are ridiculous. The taxes on tobacco are also ridiculous. And frankly, the taxes currently on alcohol are pretty exorbitant. But anyway, the, the, the point is there, there seems to be a people, there's some people out there that, are, that believe that there's a, a process in which uh, by which the the, the um, authorities out there, whoever they may be, are trying to reduce the amount of alcohol we consume um, through you know information about its well you know the 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 dependency factor, the the wellness factor in terms of how it impacts our wellness. Um, but there's huge revenue from these alcohol companies. Like I just can't imagine you know these giant companies who have humongous factories and facilities across, you know, all across countries and certainly in this country, um, how that separation is going to work. Anyway, th there's a battle obviously going on right now between the, um, the, the people that are more pro drinking than not. And um, yeah, we're, we're at a point here where we're trying to figure out how this is going to work going forward. And we're going to talk about it a little bit more in the show as well. So come on back. And uh, if you're sticking around here, we'll, we'll look at this again and uh, talk about it and see if we can figure out what this, what's going on here and where, where, what, what's the surge? Where are we suddenly talking about drinking alcohol in a way that's harmful? Is it because that we're finding people are hurting themselves more and more? I mean, let's get into that a little bit understand if that's perhaps the motivation. I don't think so. It doesn't seem to make sense to me, but um, we'll get into it a little bit more and figure this stuff out as we carry on through the show this evening. Um, I also want to talk to you a little bit about, you know, what it means to, you know, what, what consumption really means and what's, what's safe, what's not safe. I mean, that's all relative to the person who's involved in the process, right? So anyway, it's going to be an interesting show. Glad that you're able to be a part of it. We want you to participate. 877-399-9898 is how you do that. And uh, we just got so much to do tonight. I really hope you're going to be a part of everything. We're talking about this kid that was isolated in a, in a room, in a classroom, not even in a classroom. It's kind of like a closet. His parents freaked out. His mom freaked out. But not everybody in the, in the school did, certainly not the other parents. interesting segment right now we've got a really cool guest her name is miriam amdur and um her thing is about um making new friends it's called the 52 friends project so before we get into it real quick here uh because we're gonna we're gonna spend some time chatting with her it's gonna be really an interesting conversation i'm sure um she's a product marketer from richmond hill right so she's on this mission to to do something here we're gonna talk to her but i don't want to i don't want to spoil it by telling you too much about what's in the article there's actually an article that says making one new friend is hard enough this woman's on a quest to make 52. So I must be honest, I do have uh, some anxiety issues for sure. I have a, uh, I have a, a diagnosed anxiety disorder, but the social anxiety piece may be not so much, although it really gives me discomfort. Um, and the idea of meeting 52 new people, I mean, I, I, I'd hate to upset everybody out there by saying, that generally speaking, I don't like to make new friends. Um, I just find it, especially as I get older, it just seems to be, you know, with no disrespect, a lot of work, you know, um, and for the most part, you know, it takes time to nurture friendships and between grandchildren, children and a wife and, you know, a, a father who's in his late nineties and all the other stuff I do all day to try to make ends meet and help people where I can and all that stuff. Don't have a lot of time to make new friends, but it would appear that uh, Miriam is all over doing this. Um, li listen, listen to what my friend Jerry Seinfeld has to say about making friends. Leo, why are your friends so annoying? 
the people you have chosen to be with in life. It makes no sense. You'd get rid of all of them in a second if it wasn't even a bigger pain in the ass to find new people, learn about their annoying problems that they never do anything about. <laughs> so there you go. You know, you got you got to pick friends, people you want to hang out with. Miriam Amdur, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. I hope you like Jerry Seinfeld because I thought that was a hysterical episode. I, I do remember the episode as I'm listening to it. Um, you're a very interesting person uh, with a very interesting um, kind of game plan here. Uh, and I'm, I'm somewhat in awe. And at the same time, I kind of feel like when I'm watching those movies where they're hanging from a cliff, I begin to perspire and I begin to perspire and shake like, you know, they should be. So I'm a, I'm a little nervous for you, to be perfectly honest with you. Uh, this seems like the plot of a movie. Like what inspired you to decide that you'd like to make 52 new friends? And OMG, man, isn't that a lot of people to manage? Um, so it started after a period of loneliness in my life. I wanted to do something about it. And a, a friend, I was living in between two cities. So I was living in between Toronto and Miami, especially throughout the pandemic. And I met this friend and she said, if you want to make it out of this period of sadness, out of this period of loneliness, the best thing to do is to surround yourself with people that you like and to meet new people. And so I, I, I thought, why don't I do something more formal? Because I like writing. I like documenting things. But it started as very casual. In some ways, I, I went to my first friend was they were friends of my father's from high school. So I went to their house for dinner and I wrote down parts of our conversation after and took a photo. And then I did it a couple more times and the project started to gain a lot of attention, I guess, because it's um, just because I, I guess it does seem like a plot of a movie. And um, and then so I, I, I started putting more attention and effort into the stories and really thinking about who I wanted to feature. It was also an excuse for me to reach out to people that I lost touch with, which I really liked. So friends from high school, I reconnected with my high school teacher, friends from university that I hadn't spoken to in a while. So that it was a great excuse for me to reach out to people. And that's what I wanted. I think that it's not necessarily about the number, but it's about a couple things. So first, I think it's about encouraging people to reach out to people they've lost touch with. That doesn't necessarily mean you have to be best friends again, but it's always nice to hear from someone. Second, I think it's about vulnerability because I'm very vulnerable to people that I sit with and they're vulnerable to me. And then I think it's about capturing stories of friendship and loneliness. So more than it being about the number, it's about raising awareness about the loneliness stigma and encouraging us to prioritize friendship. So with every person that I meet, I ask them about their experience with friendship and loneliness. And that's yeah. always a highlight of our conversation <clears throat> that I am able yeah. to capture yeah, so um, sounds like you've told this story before, uh, because uh, you're, you know you're. you're I, I I'm trying to get to the passion part of this thing, but so in, in fairness, right? In fairness, you're not making 52 new friends. It's not like you're going up to somebody and going, "Excuse me, sir," or "Excuse me, ma'am." Would, would 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 you like to be my friend? Um, these are people that you have some familiarity with. Is that safe to say, or am I wrong? It depends. So when I started, I was in Miami. So I was actually using the app Bumble BFF and some of the friends okay. I made there, yeah. they were completely new. Um, yeah. And then a, a friend of mine from a, a, like a, a classmate from university that I had never spoken to reached out to me and asked if um, if he could be one of them. And I said, sure. And I had seen him in passing, but I never really, I never spoke to him. My friend number five, I met her at a tech event. So it was kind of this round table thing. And I met her there for the first time. And then I think the second time we met, I asked her if she'd be one of my 52 friends. A lot of people, some people are ones I've reached out to. Um, it's it's very much a mix. It's a mix of old and new, but there's no one that I'm very close with. Interesting. So um, I'm going to ask this question and I don't want to offend you. I, I have no idea um, how old you are. I'm not sure the article talks about it either, but you sound like you're you know, a fairly young person. Um, and I get the impression from the picture and I could be judging it by the picture that you don't have a ring on your finger, um, correct or incorrect. That's correct. Yes. Okay. So, um, when reaching out for friends, okay, this is the Jewish parent in me. Okay. When reaching out yeah. to friends, how do you make sure you're going to be safe and not end up with a creepy guy? <laughs> um, okay. So there's two things I want to say about this question. 
The first thing is that I think that in our lives, a lot of the time we prioritize romantic love over platonic love. And the friend, the love that we get from friendship is very important. So part of the reason I started this project is that I was um, in a romantic relationship where I felt lonely in that relationship. And I, right. when it ended, I experienced this real period of loneliness. And I didn't realize that, that you could be with someone and feel lonely with him. And then so... so that was but, another reason but, for starting but, this. Yeah, I, 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 I don't want to. I, I don't want to cut you off, but I, I, that's not. No, I, like. Yeah, I, I and then to answer your question, that, that's the answer to the question. How do you? How do you reach out? We only got a couple of minutes or two left before we go to break here. Uh, before I get you to come back, but how do you? How do you do this safely? I mean, they're obviously not regular, just run of the mill strangers, are they? Well, I think that you kind of pre-screen. So you look on social media, you see if you have mutual friends. Right. So there are ways to, to kind of do some research before you meet someone these days. And have you felt at any point, so did anybody turn you down? Anybody that you've asked for to, to be your buddy say, no, not interested. You got about 40 seconds here. I wouldn't say well, there were obviously, yeah, there've been people that said, have said no, but I wouldn't say it's because they don't want to be my friend. I think it's because they just don't want their story featured on the blog. Cause it would mean uh, that a lot of people read all this information about them. And I think that that's where the hesitation comes from. But I don't think it's because they they don't want to be my friend or they don't want to get coffee. They, they just know that I'm going to dig deep and I'm going to share it with everyone. And that's not something that everyone wants. I know that we started out as foe. But after that courageous act, maybe someday we could become friends. Friends who ride majestic, translucent steeds shooting flaming arrows across the bridge of Hemdale. I would follow you into the mists of Avalon, if that's what you mean. That's uh, courtesy of my producer, Glenn Bergonier, who is uh, just brilliant and doing a great job. I'm talking to Miriam Amdur, and uh, you're welcome back. Thank you for being back with us as a group and uh, her as a guest. Before we get to her, I just want to read you something. It can be difficult to make friends as an adult especially as the number of shared experiences like summer camp or living in dorms begins to diminish. Almost everyone is lovable, but it's mutually vulnerable. And uh, being lonely can manifest itself in a number of ways like anger, depression, impulsive behavior, impaired judgment, or bad sleep, and can lead to things like addictions. Yes, it can. In Canada, where I live, she says a 2021 social survey titled Loneliness in Canada revealed that more than one in 10 people are always or often lonely. 15% of people between the ages of 25 and 34 fell into the often or always lonely category, and 45% of those reported that their mental health was either poor or fair. Um, welcome back, Miriam. I'm talking to Miriam Amdor. She's part of, she has created the 52 Friends Project, and if you're just joining us, her goal is to make 52 new friends this year. And uh, I, I, I put her in the corner to make sure that I'm going to be one of those 52. So welcome back, Miriam. Um, how do you stay connected with, I mean, I have a hard time staying connected with 10 people. How do you do it with probably what, 20 or 30 by now? Yep. So it'll be 22 tomorrow. I think that staying connected is relative. So I'm, I'm aware that from the 52, maybe five will be close friends, maybe one or two will be very close friends. Maybe 12 will come to my wedding one day. So it's, it's like, it's, it's, it's a natural experience, I think. So for example, my friend number five, Lillian has become a closer friend. We talk almost every day. We go to events together. My history teacher, I just met him for coffee again for the second time on Friday. So friendship, there has to be an element of reciprocity to it. So obviously I, I the word friend is kind of loose in this sense. But I think that when you were making friends, it's it's something natural. You, it's not something that can be forced. Like it obviously has to be intentional, especially in adulthood, I think, because we're busy and we all have different priorities. There has to, we have to remember one another and be intentional, but um, there, we have to, both people have to have space in their lives for a friend. What's your, uh, you know, when I work with patients, uh, and we're talking about toxic relationships, you know, I, I say to them, okay, let's look at the relationship you're in, assuming they're in one, uh, look at the relationship you're in and let's make a list, you know, the good, the bad, the pros, the cons, positive, negative, um, you know, and what, you know, what does that look like? Right. So, um, when you're doing, when you're making friends for the purposes of now, here's where I'm a little lost. Is this for the purposes of the project per se, or are you intending and hoping 
that this is going to enhance and improve your life and lack of loneliness and all that kind of stuff as well. Is there a dual purpose here or is this now somewhat more of a scientific type project? I think when I started, it was really for myself. So I, I just felt lonely and I wanted to make friends. And I think that in some ways, that part of the project is completed and it's like something that like friends you have to cultivate friendships so I feel like I've, I've met a lot of really great people and I'm cultivating those relationships and then there's the and then there's the scientific part of it which is I think now the second phase now that I'm almost halfway done so that is sharing stories and getting to know one another one another and um, kind of discovering how people make friends interesting so um is there a is there an intention at some point do you think for you and these 52 people to ever show up in the same place together, sort of a Miriam Amdor friends dinner um, before there's a, a, a Lachaim or, or an engagement party. <laughs> <laughs> that, that would obviously be really nice. Um, so my birthday is in August and I, I invite these people to my birthday. I just don't know if I'll be able to fit everyone and if everyone be free because of schedules and uh, some of these people live in different places, but um, I, I do invite everyone to my birthday. It would be nice to have some kind of banquet where there's a lechaim, but we'll see what happens. Well, I just want you to, you know, again, I want to be one of the 52 if I qualify in some way. I don't know. I might be more of the Baycrest crowd for you, but, um, you know, I, I do give I do give great wedding gifts and birthday presents, by the way. It's like it's what old people do. Um, so going forward, you know, see yourself past the project of 52. Um, is this something, have you learned from this process, really, Miriam, on a serious note, have you learned in this process what works for you in terms of who you click with and who you don't click with? And I don't mean in a dating romantic way, because we, we've already agreed that this is a separate kind of thing. I mean, is there a chance you might stumble onto Mr. And Miss or Mrs. Right? I don't judge. Uh, is there a chance you might stumble onto the, you know, the next uh, person you want to spend you know, the next piece of your life with? Is that a potential? Are you open to it? Is there an opportunity here or do the boundaries kind of protect you from that? Um, I, I'm always open-minded. I think uh, that would obviously <laughs> be nice. <laughs> someone, actually, a lot of people were telling me that maybe through this project I could meet someone because it's a lot of people meet someone through friends. So right. um, so, so we'll see what happens. I, I have my eyes open, but uh, <laughs> if someone is in the frame, then I would be open to it. <laughs> It's, it's, it's interesting because you would think, you know, if you have 52 friends, you know, and each one of those 52 friends had at least one friend that had a, a brother, a cousin, a nephew, you know, someone who didn't drool when they talked to you, um, you know, or, or conduct themselves like, a, like, you know, like, a, you know, not being respectful and doing all the right things. Um, you, you know, one would think that there's an opportunity there and that would be really interesting, wouldn't it? Can you hear the, can you hear that wedding speech? You know, would, uh, well, you know, we, you know, I was, I was, I was friend number, uh, I was friend number 32 for about seven months until we realized, you know what, we really love each other. And you know, I think that, I think that I'd like to be there, like video it, maybe record live, uh, do a broadcast. Um, the friends that you have yeah. now, the, the friends that you have now, let's say the friend number one and friend number, I guess you said uh, 22 coming up here, right? Friend number yeah. one and friend number 22. Are they different kinds of people? As you move through the the inventory list, are you? Uh, and again, I don't want to sound judgy or anything. Are is, is there like? Are you not improving the kinds of friends? But are you learning from friends number one, two, three, and four what you're looking for in twenty one, twenty three, twenty seven? Like, is is there a different scale or something you're trying to benefit from in terms of adding more to the list? Um, I don't think so. I think that. Now I, I really think about the the diversity of experiences in my friends because when people read my blog, I want them to be able to see themselves within at least one of these friends. Yeah. So I, I do think about that. Um, when I'm making friends, I, I'm really open minded. I think when we look, for example, when we look for someone to date, we're very picky. But I think with friends, I'm I'm very open minded in in terms of who that person is or who the people are. Um, because so because the way they look the way they look is less important for example right <laughs> the attraction piece and then you i you generally care less about what their profession is and things like right right that. so it is a more open minded experience you can have different values and it, it won't split the family like there's <laughs> there's um i think you're we're more open minded when it comes to friends so 
Yeah, I don't know. I, I've always been someone who has a really diverse group of friends, and I think it's reflected in that pro in the project. How do your old your, your quote uncle? You got about thirty seconds here. Your old friends and new friends are getting along nicely. The ones you had before the project. Yeah, they're all getting along nicely. So I, I I made the project because I had kind of drifted from my friends from childhood, but I think that this project um, has helped, and that we'll all we'll all be together at my wedding one day. <laughs> <laughs> that's the fourth time we've talked about a wedding for miriam so if you got the right guy out there uh give us a call on my store station here 877-399-9898 send me their tax returns and a really nice picture preferably with an animal or a little child miriam thank you for being here with us this evening we're gonna i'd like to have you come back in a month or two as you get closer to 52 uh miriam amdur the 52 friends project uh great guest and really appreciate having her here I've got a story I want to share that I'm really uh, passionate and feel quite angry about, but I do want to give a shout out to my buddy George in Alberta, who is on the line, was on the line to talk to me about uh, the first story as we talked about addiction, cigarettes and alcohol. I'm inviting you, George, to try to stay awake. Stick around for the last uh, the last uh, segment of the uh, second hour, which is about uh, 15 uh, before the hour. I'm not sure the hour where you are because this is across the country uh, before the end of our show. I'd love to have you come back and chat with you about that story for sure. So just want to give a shout out to George and do appreciate his call in. Um, I read a story about a black six-year-old kid detained in isolation uh, at, at a Toronto elementary school in a part of Toronto that is, um, man, it's an area called Young and Eglinton. If you've been into Toronto at all in Ontario, uh, Young and Eglinton is like a, a happening area. A lot of business, a lot of condos, a lot of stores, a lot of stuff. Uh, there's a school in that area, um, a Toronto District School Board school. Uh, Toronto uh, obviously is, you know, part of the public school board system, um, and this kid was law was locked in a class in a in a closet. It looks like the basically the the closet they use for having somebody make announcements, you know, morning announcements. It's like a closet, more like a broom closet, right? Uh, small, very small. It looked like it was maybe two or three feet by maybe five or six feet. Um, and, uh, the allegations are, 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 are somewhat proven. I don't know. We'll get to the story part in a second, but I got to tell you a story a long time ago, a long time ago, maybe, um, over 30 years ago, uh, I was doing a lot of work with families that, uh, had kids in crisis, uh, younger kids and, you know, 13 year olds, 14 year olds, 12 year olds. Um, and I got involved with a family who had a child uh, who was restrained in class, actually handcuffed to his chair, uh, locked in the clothes closet at the back of the class, left inside unattended, um, handcuffed to his chair during lunch hour uh, by his teacher. And in those days, I was kind of half investigator, half therapist, half therapist, uh, because the work I was doing was around investigating crimes related to mental health and addiction. Um, and uh, it turned out that this young child had Tourette syndrome and Tourette syndrome uh, acts out people with Tourette's act out in many ways. Uh, one of them is something called corporelia where you swear excessively uh, using foul language uncontrollably, you know, all of a sudden the F word just pops out in sequence, you know, F, 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 right? Like imagine, or any of those words in between and there's no filter. So uh, coming out of a, that point, 12 and a half year old, the school didn't know what to do. There were discipline issues. The kid couldn't focus. They decided to restrain the child. Uh, since then, I spent a lot of time working with other families that had kids that were uh, suffering with uh, Tourette's, trying to manage it. By the way, you can live with it. You can manage it. You can learn how to control it. Um, and uh, some medication can be helpful. Here's a story, though, of this, of this kid. Okay, six-year-old kid. It's never okay. If you're listening, it's never okay to oppress a child, black, white, yellow, green, or purple, doesn't matter. Oppress anyone for that matter. The threat of a six-year-old that needs to be detained in isolation. The mother goes on to tell the story that she claims her son was also repeatedly sent to the principal's office and that uh, there's some conversation that it's because the child is black. So uh, Charlene, Charlene Grant, she's the co-founder and chief advocacy officer at Parents of Black Children, 
said that they that the mother, her name is um, Farida, that's a, a name she's just using to protect the family. Farida gathered audio recordings from inside the classroom to show how her son was being treated. This mother was at her best, hit a recording in the kid's pocket somehow, and the kid was recording or the machine was recording, the device was recording the goings-on as seen and viewed and heard by the child. The mother was floored. Floored. It was like a closet, she says, that the, the kid was, was put in. That there's previous in, allegations that are, of investigating, that, that the, the people are investigating. There's no school in this province, according to uh, to uh, to Grant, the, the, adv the advocacy, uh, lead advocacy person, no school in the province, no organization, no educators should feel comfortable ignoring the rights of any parent-child that's in the educational system, she said in a statement. Advocacy is a human right. Advocacy will, advocacy will never become advocate, advocacy will never be comfortable and easy for the system to digest. So it goes on to talk about um, that that this kid um, that this kid was you know not just oppressed in terms of being locked in this in this class in this closet, but had been sent to the principal's office like I said before many many times had been talked to in in disparaging ways. Um, there was lots of sent a lot of mental and psychological harm. So this was a French. This is and was a French immersion school. John Fisher Junior Public School, just so you know, at Young and Eglinton, just so you know. And the real issue is that now there's a whole bunch of parents. So the teacher, the vice principal, the teacher, the vice principal, and the principal were all sent home. Uh, on leave, so to speak. I guess that means they get paid, but they stay home and don't do anything. Uh, and then there's a whole uproar of, par of parents, like a whole group of parents, 30 or 40, 35, I think, 35, 36 parents with, teacher, with students in that class have petitioned expressing support for the teacher that's now on home assignment. So, and, and apparently this teacher has told, told the, the kid and the mom that the child would be better off not in French immersion school. It would be easier for them in a different school. Well, sure, because the kid has some kind of requirement that, 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 that the school is not matching. Like if a kid is acting out in class, it's up to the school to figure out what's going on. Typically, kids don't just act out in class if there's not an issue at home, an issue in their peer group. Or an issue in the in 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 some other part of their life. Sometimes it's a job if they work part time, whatever. Right? Something's going on. Thirty five parents supporting this teacher, saying that uh, that they don't they don't see the, they didn't see the issue, and that the the uh, what's it say here? Uh, the, the survey also states that the parents take the allegations of the black of the anti black racism seriously and call for the board investigation. So they're making this about see what I don't like here is they're making it about the kid being black. It doesn't matter. It's a six-year-old kid. It's irrelevant, right? All that's missing is, God forbid, the wheelchair or the canes. Like, you know, like this is obviously a child that needs some support. Maybe not, you can't observe the support the child needs because I'm. it's obviously something perhaps psychological or something emotional that's going on in this in this young person's life. Six years old, you don't have enough time in your life to be able to mold and develop the, 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 the negative, you know, vision and view of the world such that you become angry and act out unless you've been part of it, unless it's been part of your life, you've been exposed to it. Why aren't we looking at what we can do to help this kid as opposed to worrying about the teacher, the vice principal and the principal? It doesn't make sense. The, the, the principal's office allegedly ended with the boy being confined to a small room containing audio equipment where it was reported. Uh, went back through the recorder to find the alleged evidence of the, the mother went back to look for the alleged evidence. In the meantime, a parent from the older child's school community put Far, uh, Farida in touch with parents of black children. So it's not that she, you know, it, this is about my child is black. Why are they treating them like this? It's this child is being treated like this. Irrelevant of color. It's it's that's not the issue here, right? Not the issue at all. So you know we we've got to look at this from the perspective of, um, you know what's what's good for the kid. What can we do to help the child? Not worry about the the teachers and the parents and all of those people. They they can speak for themselves. This kid needs someone to speak for them, 
right? This young child. And apparently there's other kids in the school now that the parents are talking to one another, like that should have happened a long time ago, but now parents are talking to another and there's other issues within the school from not necessarily this teacher, but sort of almost systemic within that school process itself. I don't know, but Holy smokes, man, locking down a six-year-old kid without their parents' knowledge or permission or, or like, there's just no excuse. There's no excuse for handcuffing a 12 year old. Like, just, just no excuse unless they've got a gun in their hands and they're about to hurt themselves or somebody else. I don't know. So have you heard from people before that have said to you, hey, have a good day. You know, you walk through a store and you leave and you have a friendly person at the cash register and they say, have a good day. I used to think to myself, how do you know I'm going to have a good day? Like, you know, do they know something? Are they looking in a crystal ball or something? And then, you know, I was chatting with somebody a bunch of years back and uh, I said to him, okay, man, have a good day. And he says, no, I'm going to make it a great day. So I started thinking about that and it became kind of my mantra going forward. I sign all my uh, emails and stuff the same way as, you know, make it a great day. And I think it's important that we understand that having a good day isn't something that just falls onto us, right? Right. We all have all, we all have these days where we feel up, wake up and we feel you know, unmotivated, we're stressed, we're just not, you know, in the right mindset. However, there are things that we can do, right, to set ourselves up for success and make the most out of our day, right? First and foremost, it's important to start your day off on the right foot. In other words, when you get out of bed in the morning, that's when it all starts. So if you wake up grumpy and miserable, chances are you're going to have a grumpy and miserable day. So you need to shake that off right away. How I do that is I just, you know, I just take a moment and I'm mindful and I meditate for the moment on the fact that I'm <clears throat> getting out of bed healthy. I'm able to walk on my legs and use my arms and use the things, all the things in the bathroom seem to work right? And as you get older, that becomes more and more important, right? So you got to, it means you got to take care of yourself physically and mentally. In order to make it a great day, it has to make, you got to make sure you've had enough sleep the night before. You wake up feeling well rested, not hung over, you know, not getting, you know, not having a pastrami sandwich before you go to sleep and waking up in the, in the, in the morning with horrible heartburn and you feel like you want to throw up because you didn't treat yourself well. We all know that you're not supposed to eat before you go to sleep, right? It's just not good for you. So, you know, make sure you've had enough sleep. Take a few deep breaths, stretch your body a little bit, right? Kind of get into that groove, get cozy, get comfy, figure out what you want to wear that day, depending on the weather, right? I find cozy and comfy clothes are very comforting. Um, just makes me feel warm and cozy, right? When I have, I wear fleecy stuff, especially in the wintertime. And next thing you need to know is you need to set yourself some goals, right? We did that work on goal setting in terms of how you become a champion in the 10, 10, um, session champion series that we did that we just ended last week. So uh, there's podcasts out there. Feel free to look for those and uh, learn how to be a champion. But one of the things is making sure if you're becoming a champion or just making yourself a great day, you have to have goals for yourself. Think, think about what you want to accomplish that day and write it down, right? So you know if you're winning or not. It could be something as small as, you know, just making your bed in the morning or doing something like, you know, finishing a work project or, you know, do the shopping that you've put off or get your clothes to the cleaners that you've been putting off and that kind of stuff just can be a simple goal. But making it a great day means that you feel like you've achieved something and you're on the right track. Another important thing is to prioritize your tasks, right? Make a to-do list. So the important tasks are on the top of the list and the ones that you get through to the bottom, maybe, you know, they're not as important. They don't drive you as much. They're not as uh, crucial to uh, your life. So they're less of a priority. So, for example, making a payment at the bank that's due on a specific date. Obviously, that's something you want to plan for and make sure that you've, uh, you're mindful of, of, of that time, the date, the, the, the requirement, the amount, right? All that kind of stuff. So setting those things up, making sure the most important things are taken care of first, right? Want to make sure you take the time to have a little bit of exercise, right? We talk about that a lot. Maybe listen to a little bit of music. Keep yourself kind of calm on the way to work. If you're going to work, on the way to school, if you're going to school, if you're taking the kids to school, after they get out of the car, turn on some soothing music, right? Maybe get yourself a coffee or a hot chocolate or something. And make sure that you take breaks throughout the day so you have a chance to recharge yourself. And don't count on all the energy you get up with as being the energy that's going to carry you through the day. It's important, right? To surround yourself with positivity as well. 
Surround yourself with people that are positive, that are uplifting, that make you feel good about yourself. Right? Surround yourself with people that inspire you and uplift you and avoid negative input and negative situations. Avoid hassles, avoid conflict. You have to keep a positive mindset throughout the day to make it a great day. In order for it to be great, it's got to be great from the neck up, too. You got to be thinking positively, not just feeling positively. Your mind has to feel like it's going to be a great day. You have to, you have to look at yourself in the mirror in the morning and go, you know what? Yona, this is going to be a great day. Not psyching yourself into it so much, but planning your brain around it. Letting yourself know that it's going to be a great day and making sure that all the things you do throughout that day allow you to end on a positive note and start on a positive note. Taking some time to reflect on what you've accomplished throughout the day. Give yourself some pats on the back, as I say. I like to say, you know, tap yourself on the shoulder once in a while and go, hey, really good job you did today. I'm really happy with the work I've done today. I'm really happy with the successes I, I, I was able to achieve today. It'll help you feel good about yourself and then set the tone for the next day to be a great day. So making it a great day is not just about taking care of yourself and setting goals. It's prioritizing tasks, taking breaks, surrounding yourself with positivity, and ending your day on a positive note. And being all, doing all of those things, my dear friends, can set you up for the success of the day for you making it the great day possible for that day. So some of the things you need to do, we'll just start, start you off because this is a four-part series. So we'll just start you off with a couple of pointers, right? Start the day with a positive attitude. How do you do that? You convince yourself that you're in a positive frame of mind. You make sure that you tell yourself it's going to be a great day. So you drive yourself there. It's not doesn't become an accident. And planning your priorities and tasks around making it a great day. So you're able to achieve things. I try to achieve the more, most detail-oriented things in the morning when I have the most energy and focus, and the afternoon for more creative stuff, stuff that doesn't require the same aptitude or perhaps the same kind of hand-eye coordination or the same type of memory work that may be you know, required for that kind of stuff. So start your day off with a positive attitude, and you have an excellent chance of making it a great day. Next thing is, and those priorities, those tasks, right? Very important that they're achievable, that you're able to achieve the things you set yourself for that day so that you don't end up going home or coming home at the end of the day and saying to yourself, oh man, I wish I should have done this. I wish I could have done that. Make your, goal, make your goals achievable. Make them realistic in terms of timing, that you have the time to achieve these goals, that you're not pushing yourself, rushing yourself to get to that part, right? The next thing is spending time with people that you care about, loved ones. Very important. Having people in your life that you care about makes all the difference in the world. So I'm trying to explain to you, my friends, that making it a great day is something that you can not just will, but you physically make happen. And as we carry on over the next four weeks, we'll talk about this some more in greater detail. So by the end of it, you'll have no excuses as to why you can't have a great day. The story that we're talking about now for the next couple of segments, um, I found very, first looked at it and chatted with uh, Glenn, uh, and uh, he's our producer, uh, content producer, and uh, he uh, he and I were talking about the story, and I was trying to position it as uh, as people not at their best, because it, the story I'm talking about here is about, a, the story goes on to say the screams of an 11-year-old girl being violently restrained echo in the background of a video for months in early 2021, that was her life inside a group home for girls run by Hats Off, a for-profit company that is in the second largest the second largest operator of group homes for youth in Ontario. Okay, so second largest operator of group homes in Ontario, located on the outskirts of Hamilton, the house that she was assigned to was a hostile environment that consisted of harsh res physical restraints, fear or no few or no activities, awful food according to Frank. And Frank was one of the former workers that said he worked a shift at the home. Uh, so the article goes on to talk about this place that's not doing a great job of looking after uh, people. They had over 70 staff uh, who for whom I worked there and uh, took care of these kids, not paying them a whole lot of money. The government supports this program. They get a per diem. Hats off gets a per diem. That's, that's an amount of money per day to operate the program. <clears throat> and, um, uh, 
anyway, just a horrible, horrible story. They operate uh, over 40 group homes and foster and foster homes. Uh, the conditions they say is, is horrible. Uh, they're, they're just deplorable. The company receives the per diem funding of between 240 and $360 a day. The workers say kids who had higher needs could fetch as much as $1,000 a day of government per diem funding. A group home employee, not one of them made more than $19.50 an hour, and um, that included the pandemic pay bump. Anyway, without getting into that too much, a uh, horrible situation, which is really what, what got my attention to the story. And then Glenn uh, Bergonier, who is uh, my content producer and uh, just a great guy, uh, anyway, he came up with this interesting story uh, about a woman who took over Sarnia's Children's Aid Society in 2012, and she went on a rampage of making sure that no kids were left in group homes. Uh, I want you to listen to what she has to say here. Leah? I feel like an inmate. I'd rather be in jail, not treated like a human being. Yeah, there you go. So that's uh, that's Dawn retelling what children told her about group homes. Um, my guest this evening is Dawn Flagel. Dawn, thanks for joining us this evening. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. No, my pleasure. Um, and I, I want I want to make it clear to my my uh, to my uh, audience that we're talking about you at your best, as opposed to the original concept of talking about the people running hats off as people at their worst. Um, you've heard a lot of these stories, I'm sure. Um, and as as with me and the kind of work I do from time to time, sometimes we hear stories that are hard to shake. Right? Um, how how do you how do you sort of get through this when you, you know, is this what motivated you to, to put your program together? Oh, it absolutely did in many respects. Um, and this isn't new, right? This has been around for years yeah. and years yeah. and years, these concerns yeah. about children uh, in the care of children's aid societies and more specifically in group care. Um, many reports have been written, but what really, um, you know, gets me up every day is knowing that that you can make changes. Um, so listening to young people talk about how they have been treated in group care really drives you to do things differently and make changes um, for them. Yeah, but we're talking about system. I mean, first of all, it's wonderful. And, and I'm so proud of the work that you do. And so, so thrilled to, to know that someone out there is making a difference like you are. But in, in you know, the reality is you're pushing against a system. I, you know, I, I constantly dealt with this uh, with parents I've dealt with for years with uh, that have children in care and for maybe all the wrong reasons they have children in care. So they perhaps were arrested for something or whatever. Anyway, there, there's it, it, once the kids seem to be in care, it's almost an impossibility to get them out of care. Um, so you're going up against a system that's really not designed to do the good work that we're hoping is going to be done here, right? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think the system is a real problem and to, um, to have, you know, any measure of great success and it's really in spite of the system. Um, not because of it. Um, it's just right. really, really siloed and very, very difficult to navigate for parents, for their caregivers, um, for children's aid societies, um, for people who work in mental health. Um, it's not a great system at all, uh, at least in Ontario, which is where I'm from, um, to adequately support children and, and youth and their families. So um, tell us a little bit about, so I'm just so you know, I'm talking to um, Dawn Flagel. She is the executive director of the children, uh, Sarnia's Children Aid Society. Um, and tell me a little bit about your Chasing Zero initiative. It'll explain that to the audience. I mean, I, I, I've read about it. I'm, 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 you know, just enthralled by the work that you're doing there. Tell us a little bit about what it is and how it came about. So it came about, um, again, after we really spent some time uh, listening to young people and their experiences being in our care and being in group care. And then we brought the community together. So young people, um, community partners, First Nations partners, um, foster parents, our staff, board members, volunteers in a large meeting and really delved into what needed to change. And out of that came Chasing Zero, which was us uh, saying that all kids would grow up safe with families, which for us meant we would stop raising them 
and we would stop placing them in group care. You know, people would say, how do you, you know, how do you separate a child from their family um, and put them in, you know, in a place where, you know, the, the, it's a fee for service kind of love, you know, some would say generally a loveless environment, you know, it, we know it doesn't work, right? We know that it doesn't instill all the good stuff that we need to have children feel at a very young age, that safety factor, that warm and cozy feeling when they go to bed at night. Um, Chasing Zero, the, the initiative, how are you finding that you, how were you able to find a solution for these children that weren't um, government directed? In other words, I, tell us how the initiative works. Um, so it's really supported quite strongly by another um, aspect of our plan, which was called All at the Table. And that really was about bringing everyone to the table, including the family and the child's connections or the young person's connections and working together to create the best plan for that particular child or young person. So really getting out of that mindset that that we're the experts and somehow know, because clearly we don't after um, story after story after story of the challenges that children have experienced many times uh, being in care and growing up in care. Um, so really looking to the child and, and the family and the community resources to figure out an individual plan based on the, the child's needs and the, and the young person's needs that did not involve the Children's Aid Society raising them. So um, we got about a minute left. How did you find a family? How are you finding families to raise them? Um, real quick here. Um, they've always been there. Uh, we just did. We weren't talking to them and we weren't looking hard ah, enough. Um, they were always there. Ah, so there's an aunt that wanted to, but just couldn't get in the game. Yeah. For example. Yeah. We did not yeah. make it easy for families to come forward and care for their kin. Um, I fundamentally reject the idea that there is no other option for a young person other than placing them in a, in a group care. You're listening to the voice of Dawn Flagel. She's the executive director with the Sarnia Children's Aid Society. And my guest this evening, she'll be back with us in just a second here. Uh, she says, goes on to say in an article, uh, we didn't hear from a single young person that group homes were good for them, said Flagel, executive director. Uh, sweeping changes are neater, needed. She resolved and she made them. Uh, she uh, went on to say that her and her colleagues created an ambitious plan called Chasing Zero meaning zero group homes, zero kids growing up in care and uh, achieving that with great success, I believe, and certainly someone at their best. Dawn, welcome back to the show. Um, you know, the uh, next kind of question I have here is in reaching your in reaching your goal of zero kids in homes, um, is it are you still there and is it sustainable? So we reached zero kids in group homes back uh, four years ago in February of 2019. And so we yep. have sustained it for four years um, and we intend to continue. Um, that's our plan. Okay. What, what, how about funding and care? So all the money that the government had set aside for some of these shoddy operators, and in fact, positive, you know, there are some group homes that provide, uh, I guess, some quality of care. I, you know, I, I, it's not what the show's about right now. But um, is there funding available to help these families that are taking these kids into the homes? Oh, not near as much as there is um, for group home providers, I can tell you that. So, um what we did is so, we what, to, so why would that why would that be the case if the money's there and it's you know two hundred and thirteen dollars a day to keep a kid in care why wouldn't the family get something reasonably close to that? So the government in Ontario has guidelines on what kin uh, families receive and it's about a thousand dollars a year uh, oh, compared wow. to yeah compared to what group home providers receive it's um, significantly different. And in Ontario, part of our funding model is based on the number of children in care. So because we have reduced the number of children in care so significantly, our funding has subsequently declined. So at the end of the day, it's a win for the government. Not only is yeah. it a win for the kids, clear, win for the kids and their families, clearly, but it's mm -hmm. a win for the government. I would think that they would be as supportive of your program as possible. Absolutely. They're very supportive of the direction that we have gone in. I would say 
that the families who take care of the children, though, need much more support and funding than they're currently being provided. And who's advocating for them? Well, uh, there's lots of people trying to advocate for that. Grandparents are advocating. Children's aid societies are advocating um, with the government for, for those changes. And there have been some marginal changes for supports for them, but they, they need um, much more. So explain to everybody, your, your plan is, um, and working well, uh, your plan is something called kinship placements. Can you explain to our listeners what a kinship placement is, please? Yep. So a kinship placement is anyone who is connected to the child, um, either through blood or relations, or it could be just um, a personal connection that the child has with somebody. So like a teacher or a coach or um, someone who has a relationship with the child, um, that's who is preferred um, after also being screened um, and having a home study uh, completed at the same time. Uh, the child goes to live with them. They do much better. Um, they're more likely to have stable placements. Their well-being is uh, usually better, their mental health and wellness. And and you seem and the kids seem to be much more willing to go right like versus I mean these are clearly not strangers to the children correct yeah they know who they are so it's you know imagine if you're you know five years old and you can't stay with your parents um, how frightened you would be and how relieved you would be if you knew you were going to stay with your aunt or your your grandma and grandpa um, as opposed to um, strangers as kind as the strangers might be they're still strangers to a child. Exactly. Are you always able, like in, in this program, or have you have you been successful, uh, like a hundred percent of the time, in finding a kinship placement, or are there some kids that just there's there's no one there that's healthy enough or stable enough to take them? Yeah. So it's not a hundred percent of the time, but we certainly have made the shift. So we have more children now who live with kin families than we do in in foster care, and it's also not just um, you know oh we looked once there's nobody and so therefore we never look again. Like we continue to look and continue to look for the families. So even if it's not right away, we'll continue to explore uh, kin and family. Who support this? Who supports the, like, is there support available for the families whose children were taken uh, from them? In other words, uh, the family, so the, the, is a goal to uh, the kids that are taken from their parents is it the goal for you or this program to eventually reconnect the kids with these parents or that's not ever going to happen and they're going to be staying in some family environment oh no for the most part almost all the ways we're looking to um work with the family to have the children return to to their to their parents if it's at all possible um and then if it's not possible then the children stay with kin is there a greater opportunity for the kids to visit their or have visits with uh, their paternal mother, father, uh, you know, their, their, their natural mother, birth mothers and fathers? Uh, is there a better opportunity? Do they get more visitation chances now because they're going to Auntie Jones or to grandma's or to Billy, you know, Uncle Billy down the street? Is it more likely that they're going to get to see family throughout this process than clearly if they were in a, a group home setting? Oh, absolutely. And and not just family, but um, for Indigenous kids as well, connections to their communities and their cultures, yeah. um, critical, yeah. um, so, so important. And so it also increases the likelihood that they'll stay quite connected to their to their community and culture. So where else is something like this going on? Chasing Zero, it's something you woke up with in the middle of the night in a dream, or this is something you've heard of before? Give us an idea where this might have come from. Uh, no, so didn't didn't just uh, strike me out of the blue. And I do have to acknowledge a lot of the Indigenous agencies and communities have done this work forever. Um, and there's a lot that can be learned from them. And then nice. for our agency, the ideas really came from us talking together, listening to kids, listening to families. Um, and there has been a provincial direction here in Ontario as well for increased use of kin. So there are agencies absolutely um, also moving in that direction. 
on the group home, there's also been a decrease in the number of kids placed in group care. Of course, it's not at zero, which is what we would all like to see, but that is also um, a strong direction that we're all going in. Uh, in the last minute that we have here with you, um, what's happening here with the group homes themselves that are left behind with all of this knowledge, it's one thing to keep kids out of them, but the ones that still exist, are we doing a better job? Certainly in Ontario, maybe across the country, if you know, uh, are we doing a better job monitoring them and making them a little more accountable? Well, that's a big question. Um, <laughs> I would say no. Um, there are attempts being made, um, a bunch of rules being put in place to monitor but the reality is, um, even if you go there every single day for an hour, there's still 23 hours in a day where you're not there. Um, the, the whole idea, the whole concept of it, I disagree with. Yeah, I too do. I, I do too. And I just, I, I'm just so thrilled that something like this is, is underway and hopefully will be the shape of things to come, not just in Ontario, but across the country. Uh, and it's interesting that you mentioned that Indigenous people have been doing this for, Indigenous agencies have been doing this for a very long time. Um, I found that talking to my Indigenous friends that are in uh, care, you know, help, or in the helping professions, uh, they're really good at thinking outside the box generally uh, because they get a lot of input from elders and those in the community that ha just have some excellent ideas. So really glad we could meet with you tonight, Don. I'm talking to Don Flagel, the Executive Director with the Sarnia Children's Aid Society, uh, doing a great job of z uh, chasing zero. No Kids in Care has been that way since 2019. And uh, you never heard about it, right? But uh, you hear about it now. And we want to make sure we can continue to support that in all of our communities.